You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Alive, an ongoing and monthly conversation about the Disney animated canon in chronological order. Today we're discussing the 16th movie in the canon, 1959 Sleeping Beauty. I'm your fellow student and friend, Josh Altman Chauffeur, and with me as always is, well, you all know him, you've met him before, once upon a dream. He's Dr. Michael Farmer. Little known fact about Michael, on the day of his birth, three fairies arrived and granted him gifts of grace, beauty, and song. <laughs> How are you doing, Michael? <laughs> Did, did she get did she get all three of those cuz I thought one of her gifts was that she wouldn't die when she stabbed her finger into the Well, so you know, it's wheel. interesting. Yeah, well, it's interesting because so she gets the two gifts she was supposed to get, which were beauty and song. And then uh, Maleficent steps in and says she will grow in grace and beauty. So that's where I stole the grace from. Um gotcha. but in the we should we should talk. I don't know if you want to jump in and start with with that, but the the source material for this um, there's a lot of a lot of different uh, versions, and so in in some versions she receives a lot of gifts. Um, do you want to, do you want to jump in there, or do you want to come back to it later? I'll confess I haven't read much of the source material. I've I've read about it. I know that in the source material she falls asleep for a hundred years, and the person who rescues her is a hundred years younger than her. Uh, and that many princes die trying to get there. I know there are two versions. There's the uh, Charles Perrault version and the Brothers Grimm version, which is why our princess here is called both Aurora and Briar Rose, which are the two different names for her. But I, I haven't read either one of them. So if you have, uh, talk away. Well, you know, the with the Grimm's particularly, it's hard to get. I mean, maybe if I would have searched around a little more, I would have got it. But I feel, I feel like... Um, you know, I have two different versions of Grimm's and like my kids have them, you know, and they're not, neither of them are the same, but they both claim to be Grimm's. And so, um, but what I was going to say was that, yeah, the, the number of fairies is very different. There's, there's one where, and I don't remember which one is which, but there's one where there's, um, six fairies and it's the seven one, seventh one who's left out and comes. And then there's another one where there's actually 12 fairies and Maleficent is the 13th fairy that got left out. Um, and so, yeah, the Disney definitely shrunk the the number of fairies, but always um, a significant number. So that's interesting. Always a kind of wholly associated number. Yeah, the uh, the Wikipedia page pointed out that perhaps um, part of the thirteen and one was left out, leaving twelve good fairies, was a a, a change from the lunar. Um, calendar system to the solar calendar system, which kind of fits with the name Aurora. Um, which just means dawn that, in French. 
yeah, I thought that was really interesting, but uh, I have no idea if there's any anything any weight to that. But I like, assumed it was like Judas. Oh, that that would make sense too. Um, yeah, although Judas was, then it would have been twelve and eleven, maybe, right? Yeah, but then they replaced him with Matthias, so that's, that's thir- thirteen apostles overall, of, and one of them was, one of them was evil. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense too. Actually, I was going to ask you, um, and maybe you don't know anything about this. the The Wikipedia page also mentioned that some of the prior material before, um, Grimm and uh, the French guys. What's his name? Sorry. Perot. Yeah, Perot. Uh, not Ross, right? Um, uh, Spelled differently. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, between Grimm and Perot was um, that there's based on like some of the prior stuff was uh, Christian saints, uh, Hagia. <laughs> What's the word? Hagio... Hagiography or hagiography? Yeah, hagi- yeah, hagiography. Thank you. You're really helping me out here. This hagiography. Was pronunciation. Yeah, uh, which I was fascinated by, but they didn't, you know, sometimes Wikipedia doesn't link to anything. When it does, it's dangerous because you can get caught in the rabbit hole, and when it doesn't, it's frustrating because it's like, well, what are you talking about? Who put that in there? <laughs> Do you know anything about that? I don't. Sorry. Sleeping, <laughs> sleeping, sleeping Christian saints? Uh, I can't. Yeah, I mean, I was, I'm sure there is one because there's there's so many saints that there there's. I mean, there's saints who get their heads cut off and then the heads continue to talk to condemn the people who cut the head off. And so, I mean, there, there's lots of fairy tale esque things that happen in old old time hagiographies. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to stick on this too for too long, but my other question, kind of about it, was just the the. Uh, the globalization that that we see and in this in just the way these things come about right so we have a a fairy tale with um with two versions you know a french version and a and a german version and they're not super far apart from each other obviously <laughs> geographically but um part of the reason that grim decided to include his because my understanding was grim was like trying to find out like what's true german right um and so Part of the reason why he decided to include it was because there was older source material than the French stuff. Um, there was an Icelandic thing, and and so he thought it was German enough to include. Um, but then we get all of that turned into a a uh, a ballet by Tchaikovsky over in Russia, and then all of that turned into you know a fairy tale in in America, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, or, or a, I mean, it's already a fairy tale. Sorry, I'm, I, you know what I mean, like a, a feature, an animated feature. Uh, I don't know, it, it just struck me. I know that's that's been in the background of some of the other stuff that we've done too, like how these. But it's just interesting how these stories bounce around the globe, particularly in an era where um, you wouldn't maybe imagine that, you know. Well, and I think there's a certain sort of folklorist, maybe influenced by Carl Jung, um, who who would say, well, the reason for that is that these stories get at something that's universally human, whatever these stories are quote unquote really saying is so universal as to, to, as to not matter what country you find it in. And, you know, I don't know what the Jungian reading of sleeping beauty is. I think it has to do with sexual awakening. Um, but certainly the universal quality of the story would, would make sense to me. Yeah. 
definitely the source material has a lot more sexual stuff in it. Um, <laughs> it makes me really uncomfortable, actually. Uh, but the the Disney thought that the so it's kind of their source material is kind of in two acts, and the the first act ends with the with the awakening of Sleeping Beauty, and um, the the guys at Disney thought that the second act just got too weird, and so they decided to make that the climactic moment. Uh, so we, uh, most of us don't know the second part now, but fair enough. I mean, do you really want your 1959 Disney cartoon to have quasi-sexual content? Definitely not. Definitely not this quasi-sexual content either. I'll leave it to people on their own to go search out the source material if they're really interested in it. We'll try and keep this show family friendly. But that's an amazing thing too that we've touched on before in the past is just like what passes for family friendly today, and like these are. You know, were these tales for children? I don't know. Like fairy tales, I think of in that way, but man, they're dark and and creepy. Well, again, I think we've talked about this before, but the notion that childhood was a special time of life that demanded special type of stories is, I believe, a late 19th century invention, which is why you get that blossoming of classic children's stories in the Victorian era. The Alice stories, Peter Pan is Edwardian, but a little bit after that. My understanding is that childhood, as we think of it, is a stage of life that did not exist when these fairy tales were being written or, you know, passed around in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. So, I mean, it makes sense that the stories would be neither for children nor adults, but just kind of there. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to to have a time machine just to, to witness some of that, I guess, and see see what life was like for, for younger ones at that time. But, Yeah. So anyway, we should jump into this movie um, in particular. What 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 are your uh, memories and thoughts and, and feelings on this one, Michael? I don't remember liking it much as a kid, but I would say now that this is probably my favorite of the the classic Disney movies. I think the animation is is beautiful. The story is much more interesting than I re- had remembered it being as a child. Uh, and of course, Maleficent is the greatest of all Disney villains. All right, strong, <laughs> strong, strong opinions. I don't, I don't know. Uh, you said on Twitter that you had no memory of the movie. Yeah, I don't have any memory of it at all. So, I, I definitely I don't have any nostalgia playing in to my to my judgment on this one. Um, Maleficent is an amazing villain. I will I will agree with you there. I don't know if she's the best of all of them. Who would you put above her? Ah, uh, it's a good question. Um, I mean, Ursula, maybe? Yeah, and, and Ursula owes so much to Maleficent, wouldn't you say? When we were watching it, Victoria said, Maleficent's a drag queen. And I mean, of course, Ursula is almost literally a drag queen. She's based on Divine. So I, I think there's a lot of I think there's a lot of overlap between Maleficent and Ursula. They're, they're both these huge uh, characters. For that matter, Captain yeah. Hook, also huge in that way, but Maleficent yeah. doesn't Captain, have any of the comedy that Captain Hook has. Right. Which, yeah, and that that goes to what kind of, what what's what's our ranking as like what makes them a, a great villain, right? Like, sure. If you're going for more of the, the comedic villain, then, then Captain Hook is, is much greater there. Um, I'm trying to think of who else you could reasonably say is better than her. Maybe Scar from The Lion King. He's, he's a pretty great villain. Yeah. Yeah, I should have thought of this beforehand because I, I know as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to think of somebody and be like, ah, oh, I should have thought of that. But um, yeah, I'm not saying that that she's not a great villain. She she obviously is. I just I always hesitate to 
to put that ist on something, I guess. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm always thinking I'll doubt myself later. I, I can't uh, I can't think of one who's who's better just in terms of like genuine threat and, and in terms of having a character that is relatively fleshed out. So, I mean, the the evil queen from Snow White, for example, is a great villain, but is kind of one note. Maleficent mm-hmm. has these hidden depths, um, stuff that's not really explained about her uh, that that rounds her out. Uh, that being said, have you seen the live action Maleficent film from a few years ago? I have not. I haven't so either. The good thing that I can say about that film is I'm pretty sure that it was around that one where I was like, okay, this is the this is the last straw. Like <laughs> Disney is clearly going down this road. <laughs> and so I mean cuz there's I mean they've had more before that, right? But I just feel like that was the dam breaking was was Maleficent. And so Well, Victoria and I were I talking w- about this cuz she she was on the crossover for Psycho and and there's a bunch of sequels to Psycho including a television show called Bates Motel, which is there to kind of explain how Norman Bates became Norman Bates. Um, and Maleficent does the same thing. And my understanding, I haven't seen it, but my understanding is that Maleficent is evil because King Stefan sexually assaulted her. Which I, I get, it, it's it's to, you know, there's this long history of making villains more sympathetic. And, and you know, that makes her a, an icon for the for modern day feminists and the, the, the Me Too movement before the Me Too movement was a thing. Uh, or at least a public thing. Uh, but how boring... <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like Maleficent is so much more interesting when she's this elemental force of evil um, without explanation. To, right. To me, she's more interesting anyway. Yeah. Well, she's much more archetypal in that way. It's just, you know, evil personified. She doesn't really have much or doesn't seem to need much of a motive to just be wicked. Right. Yeah, and she's she's offended, but you get the sense they didn't invite her because they were afraid she was going to do this anyway. Right. Yeah. This movie seems like a series of bad decisions to me. <laughs> like the plot. Of this they movie. do behave very strangely. <laughs> Although I, you know, I I was thinking about that, and I think maybe you could just chalk it up to there being a curse from the most powerful magical force in the universe. So, like, why on earth do Flora, Fauna, and Merryweather take? aurora back to the castle when it's still her birthday why not keep her in the forest where there are no spinning wheels well the answer has to be that maleficent's curse drew them to do that whether they realize that's what they were doing or not do you know what i mean yeah yeah i'm glad you said that because there yeah that is definitely a way to explain it in a way that does make sense within the within the story although yeah, I mean, yeah, it does make sense. Maleficent, they they give the idea that they're that Maleficent is angry because because her curse hasn't happened yet, but maybe that's just um that doesn't mean that she doesn't that doesn't mean that she doubts that it will happen, right? Yeah, so. I, I guess that's true. She seems to think that it might not take place. That's why she has to send her goons to find Aurora. Yeah, but I don't know. Um. Yeah, her yeah. <laughs> her goons or something else. That's where the comedy is, is in the goons. It's not in the uh it's not in her 
Yeah, you know? yeah, that that's true. Where they're they're looking for the baby, and I uh, one of my favorite comedy things: the villain starts laughing because the the henchmen are so stupid, and the henchmen laugh along because they don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> right, they don't understand the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's what I mean. Even that is like, yeah, we could we could run through the bad decisions in this movie, and I don't know if that would be appropriate because I don't I don't want to nitpick the movie. I, I I did enjoy it, but you know why didn't it? Why didn't you check in at any point in the last 16 years to see exactly who they were looking for, you know, if you know that they're if they're idiots. So, um, but yeah, in that way, they're much more like, uh, what is it? Is it in? Um, yeah. Does Hercules have little goons like that? I have only uh, seen Hercules once and it was 10 years ago. I don't really remember yeah. much about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think in my head, though, I get the. The Hercules. What's Hades, I guess. Uh, I get him mixed up with um, Rasputin in that uh, Anastasia movie, the oh. animated Anastasia movie. Oh, sure. Because oh, sure. both of them, I'm, I'm not super familiar. Like, I've seen both of them, but like for whatever, I know that doesn't make any sense, but in my head, it like I, I confuse them, and I'm like, which one was doing the thing? So, yeah, Ras- I think Rasputin has the little goons, maybe. Anyway, we'll get there. We'll get to, uh, we'll never get to or uh, Anastasia, but we will get to uh, Hercules someday. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like I sidetracked us there. Where were we going? <laughs> this show is basically nothing but sidetracks, so that's okay. Um, one other thing we need to say about Maleficent is she's played by Eleanor Audley, who uh, also plays uh, Lady Tremaine from Cinderella, and this right. is just an amazing vocal performance from her. And, and yes. it, it made even more amazing because she almost didn't accept the role because she was battling tuberculosis yeah. at the time. Yeah, Lady Tremaine would be a, a potential... <laughs> Um, other villain that would that would match her, you know. Well, and we talked Just, about how scary Lady Tremaine is, despite having no supernatural powers. Um, but, mm-hmm. but Maleficent is everything Lady Tremaine is. Plus, she's the most powerful <laughs> magical force in the universe, and she can turn into a dragon. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine if uh, Lady Tremaine could? <laughs> about the tuberculosis, if you'll if you'll notice, um, Maleficent touches her chest a lot when she talks. It's because they used live action models for this, and Eleanor Audley frequently touched her chest because of her tuberculosis. Oh. So it ends up in the actual movie, even though it's animated. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like your cats want to chime in for us. <laughs> They're very opinionated on this. I bet I bet your cats have a lot of thoughts on Lady Tremaine, since she's clearly such a cat lover. Uh, yeah, well, this cat has no thoughts other than, when will Michael touch me? <laughs> oh. So yeah, Maleficent is great. I think Maleficent, it, her, her most kind of... Uh, like worst worst i mean uh, she's cursing a baby so that's pretty bad yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's that's really bad okay but then like when she like her plan is to hold uh prince philip until he's an old man and then let him go and rescue her so that their love is you know is basically impossible because he's he's ancient and and going to die you know isn't that amazing though the pure the pure spite of that uh of that decision is is just magnificent. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> I was shocked when I saw that. Yeah, that's what that's actually where they tied back in the the hundred years thing. I think 
because in the in this one they they drop all of that basically other than that she's going to let let sleeping beauty sleep until prince philip is is an old man and then then let him go to it's really crazy so crazy yeah i'm sure they didn't want her to marry someone 100 years her junior yeah, well, that, that part's always funny to me in the original because it's like, what kind of kingdom was this that a whole, like, king, queen, all the, you know, all the nobles and everything can just go to sleep for 100 years, like, and then wake up and everything's fine? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's How different... long are they asleep in this movie for, like, five hours? It's It's not very long. It's short. Yeah, it's short. Yeah, it's fine. But, yeah, like, you, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like, I mean, maybe, maybe at that time, that I don't even know what time. Oh, this is set in the 14th century, huh? Yeah, Prince Philip says yeah. that. Says uh, it's yeah. the it's the modern world. It's the 14th century. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I guess if you have a lot of kingdoms kind of equally vying for power, and one just steps off the stage for a little while, the other ones don't really care. They just they just step in and take over, and then yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and here, know. here the rival kingdom is also asleep, I suppose, because King Hubert is anyway. That's right. Yeah, and he's in addition, as far as I can tell, to the to the Disney stuff. But. And thank God, because uh, without him, you don't get scumps. <laughs> right. I was. I did not know what to think of scumps. Do you want to talk about scumps? <laughs> I, I had forgotten about it. Like, it's not something you remember when you're a kid. I remember him sword fighting with the fish, but I, I hadn't remembered him. Uh, I hadn't remembered the drinking song. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the only Disney drinking song. Uh, and it's a it's a remarkable scene to me. You, you have that you have that wonderful animated uh, minstrel who is continually stealing this good wine and uh, eventually passes out with his loot on his head. I have it written down who animated that sequence. John Lounsbury animated that minstrel, and uh, God bless him for it, because that's, that's the funniest thing in the movie, for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Sometimes when Victoria that's... and I drink, we, uh, we say scumps. <laughs> As you should, definitely. Yeah. I guess the only other drinking scenes maybe in... Uh... Beauty and the Beast. But there's not a drinking song, right? There's the it's the Gaston song, I guess. Oh, you're right. That is kind of a drinking song. Yeah. Less applicable to my life. Yeah. Scumps is much more much better. Um so (laughs) that's that actually reminds me, that's where I wanted to go. Um so you said uh in addition to Maleficent being the the best of the villains, or the worst of the villains, um that you you really like the animation on this, which I, I agree with, but the the animators hated it. <laughs> yeah, they you did. <laughs> I think they hated the process. So so what happened was Mary Blair didn't work on this movie, but it actually has quite a bit to do with Mary Blair, which is, you know, she had these beautiful stylized backgrounds that we've talked about many times on the show. And then over the top of them, they'd put characters that didn't really match the backgrounds. So if you look at Alice in Wonderland, for example, you see these stylized backgrounds and these more or less realistic characters in front of them. And if you look at the uh, development art that Blair did, the characters are also much more stylized. So Disney said, I want characters that are going to match the backgrounds. They bring in this guy, and again, I need to look up his name, Ivan Earl, I think. Uh, yeah, Ivan Earl. And he has this idea to look at these medieval tapestries. They're called The Hunt of the Unicorn. 
um, they're real tapestries. He sees them in, a, in the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, and he uh, he designs these backgrounds based on the tapestries. So they're they're again these very stylized medieval style tall brightly colored backgrounds and then disney gives him essentially full creative control over the color palettes and designs of the characters in front of them so they'll all match and the animators who were used to having control over their characters in the animation uh weren't terribly happy with that as you might imagine and it was also very difficult to do stylized characters that actually stood out from these stylized backgrounds so i think the process of making the movie was a real pain in the butt for the animators in particular yeah, and yeah, they, and the the way I saw it was that they they found it hard to infuse any sort of joy or humor into it. So I think that was, you know, be, because of the process and because of because of the style. And so I think you do see with um, the <laughs> the loot play, loot playing uh, uh, wine drinker guy, you see that that that's a really funny scene, and that's that's a place where they were successful. Whereas maybe. Um, yeah, overall, this movie is not as funny as some of the other ones. I think there's quite a bit of humor. You get the, the kind of clashes between Flora and Meriwether. Yeah, the fairies themselves are pretty great. And I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of humor in the... Uh, so, yeah, let me just talk through it with you and because I, I haven't thought through all this. So, yeah, you have the scene in the on the 16th birthday where they're, they're trying to put together the dress and the cake. And that's, that's all pretty funny. And the, the sword fight with the fish, as you mentioned, was pretty funny. Actually, King Hubert remind, reminds me a lot of the, the, the King and Cinderella as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's just kind of that, that joyful bumbly sort of style. So very passionate. Yeah. So you get, yeah. And then you get some really sweet moments. I don't know how funny they are. Like, I really like the rabbits and the boots, you know, but I don't know. If, like, It's kind of a blend of very cute and, and funny, I guess. But at the same time, you get all the scenes with Philip and the horse, which are very funny. Oh, yeah, that's true. No carrots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think yeah. the humor stops rather abruptly as soon as she pricks her finger. And actually, as soon as she goes back to the castle, there is no more humor really in the entire movie. Um, yeah, and maybe that's why I was thinking that was because it was the the last impression was was weighing on me more than the first impression. Well, and, and I mean the part of the movie everybody remembers is the the climactic battle between Prince Philip and Maleficent the dragon. So uh, you know it, it makes sense that you remember the movie as not having a lot of humor, but I think there's quite a bit. The the fairies in particular are really, really funny. And and the way they make Flora kind of terrible, even though she's good, is is uh, really great to me. Another performance by Verna Felton, who plays uh, the head elephant and Dumbo and the head flower in Alice in Wonderland, and then also the fairy godmother in, uh, in Cinderella. Here she kind of splits the difference between those two characters. Yeah, she does a great job. What what part of her terribleness and goodness do you, did you see? Well, my favorite my favorite line from her is she's making this dress by hand, which she has no idea how to do, despite having living lived in the woods for sixteen years. You'd think they would learn how to cook <laughs> and sew at some point, but whatever. Uh, she's she's making this horrible dress and it looks like a tank. And uh, Meriwether says, "This looks terrible," and Flora says, "That's because it's on you, dear." <laughs> Yeah. 
<laughs> but you know, Flora's the head fairy, and she's the one who saves Aurora. Um, uh, she she's the one who gives Prince Philip the I think it's the sword. She may give him the shield that saves his life when he fights Maleficent. She's the one who uh, enchants the sword so that it'll kill Maleficent. I mean, in, in some ways, Flora is really the hero of the movie. Certainly, I would say the three fairies are the heroes of the movie. Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, yeah, I think, is Mary, Meriwether's the blue one? Yeah, that's right. Everybody's favorite. Right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely my favorite. Yeah, she's really funny. We, we were trying to figure out if anybody prefers Flora to the other two, and if so, uh, how much of a pain in the butt are those people? <laughs> Let us know right in. <laughs> You're one of those people. <laughs> um, yeah, they're a lot of they're a lot of fun. The I think that the um yeah the the sixteen years in the in the in the forest, I just uh it's it it didn't sit right with me. Like the, the taking her there, like I was just like, what? Why the king and queen have been waiting like to have a baby, and then they immediately take her away? You know, well, and they know so. exactly when the thing is going to happen. They they know it's going to be on her sixteenth birthday. So f- first of all, why does he burn all the spinning wheels in the entire kingdom the day the curse is done? I mean, nobody's going to be able to make clothes for sixteen years. <laughs> yeah, I was I was wondering about the economics of that. <laughs> I, I, I think it would probably make sense to take her away when she's fourteen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right when she hits puberty, and parents don't want to deal with their kids anyway, for the most part, right? <laughs> Although, if you're a parent of a teenager, they really need you at that time. Or, like, an adolescent, pre-adolescent, they, they really do need you. I know that it's a fight, but... They just won't tell yeah. you. They won't tell you, but they do. It's really important. Keep keep being a good parent. So you wonder what Aurora is going to grow up like. Well, if, I mean, she was raised by people. It's not like she was abandoned in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's her whole social, like, world. Like, she's not allowed to talk to anybody except for the animals. Right, so. right. Well, she's friends with these three fairies who she doesn't even know are fairies because they don't, they don't have yeah. wings or use magic. Yeah, that was one part I actually thought was really great in this was the the reality of her being a princess. Like, on the one hand, you could see it as just kind of a temper tantrum. Like, why, why um, is it so important to her that that she, you know, meets this guy that she only has only met for, you know, a minute or whatever. Um, but then on the other hand, like, I feel like it really, it's, it's like her whole world is different and it really sets in on her. And she, you know, she just is distraught. Uh-huh. <laughs> makes, makes perfect sense. There's some emotional weight to that character. Uh, yeah. Even though yeah, was really... ultimately she's a minor character in this movie, right? It's named after her, but. She doesn't have that much. She's. I, I think I read that she's in the movie for 18 minutes. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's kind of amazing. What should they have named this movie? The Three Fairies. I, I, I don't the know. Three Fairies. Sleeping Beauty is a good name because, I mean, that's what the movie is about. But she's not the. She's not really the protagonist. Prince Philip is more yeah. the protagonist than she is. Yeah. She's not even asleep for that long. <laughs> no. <laughs> really? I mean, yeah. Anyway. Prince yeah. Philip uh, is. Yeah, go ahead. 
Oh, I was going to say, let's talk about Prince Philip when you were starting. How about that? Yeah, Prince Philip is much more interesting than either the prince from Snow White or the prince from Cinderella. He he is funny. He's kind of dashing. He has an actual personality. He's better animated than both of them. Uh, In fact, I would say he's probably, he he is at the very least the most interesting prince until, uh, until, the Beast, but I would probably say even to Flynn Rider from Rapunzel, who who very clearly owes a lot to Prince Philip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This uh, this movie, I feel like we we could we could we've already mentioned a couple, right? Like we've mentioned Ursula, and now you're mentioning Flynn Rider. Like I, I feel like there's a lot in this movie that you're like, oh, this is the prototype for what they're gonna do. But the strangely enough. They really go away from this movie for 30 years. Like, there's not another uh, um, Disney princess until Ariel. Like, it's, you know, they really go a different direction. Yeah. Like, no more. So, anyway, what, I, I don't want to hang out there because I, I do want to I want to spend the time on Philip, but I, I just think that's interesting. Um, yeah, I liked I liked Philip. I like that he. Uh, yeah, I like that he gets to actually fight and and do something. Like he doesn't just show up and win the girl because he's the prince or whatever. You know, like he has to he has to battle a little bit. Hey, well, and he does, but also kind of he doesn't do anything, right? Because he's gonna he's gonna rush off to rescue Aurora without any kind of weapon or plan, and it's the fairies who give him all of his weapons. It's the fairies who end up. Uh, who who keep him from being murdered by the goons over and over again? It's the fairies mm-hmm. who enchant the sword and allow him to kill Maleficent. I mean, so he fights, but it's not really his fight. It's the fairies' fight, and he's the kind of channel for their magic. Yeah, yeah, very true. It it's really in terms of the gender politics of Disney movies. It's really pretty advanced. I mean. This movie passes the Bechdel test quite easily. In fact, the the female characters have all these conversations. The vast majority of them don't have anything to do with Prince Philip because they're not aware of his existence until the end of the movie. Um, you know, the the movie is about female emotions in a, in a lot of in a lot of ways, like Princess Aurora's uh, distaste for being a princess is is a major point in the movie, and I mean. I, I, it's you know if you're if you're looking for movies to show your daughters because you want them to to have options as women I think you could do a lot worse than Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, I can see all that. I wonder, like, I'm trying to think of of another another example of that where the where the like the there's a hero like not even a Disney movie but just like a hero who's who's acting. And, you know, gets to throw the sword, but really doesn't have any of the power himself. Like he's been totally or herself, right? Been totally equipped by um, not their own. Like there's always the hero's journey of, you know, like, oh, you know, who are you? Just some farmer on Tatooine or whatever. And, you know, but like then there's the training sequence, you know, but Prince Philip doesn't really have the training sequence. And he doesn't really like you said, like he doesn't really. He has to hold the weapons, I guess. His his power, weirdly enough, is emotional. The reason the reason he's the person to do this is because she loves him, and you know, true love's kiss has to awaken her. Right. 
Yeah, and he loves her too, right? Right. Like, right. I mean, he's he's a prince. He could literally marry almost anybody. I mean, he's been betrothed his whole life, but like, you know, he just tells his dad like, I'm I'm gonna marry a peasant. Um, shades of shades of Aladdin there. Um, and then, uh, yeah, gets the and is gets away with it essentially. You know, like his dad's not happy about it, but his dad goes to to King Stefan and says sorry that we're gonna have to call this wedding off um as he's falling asleep so yeah he, he definitely loves her as well So did you show this movie to your daughters? I didn't. I watched it late. Like I often do. I don't know what my problem is. Uh, maybe you can counsel me through this. No, Michael. no. Every, every I, month I say, I'm going to watch this movie three <laughs> times. So I have a whole yeah. other, And I watched it two days ago. Yeah. Since So I'm really hesitant to show them anything if I have no memory of it. So Well, and there's, um, so, I, there's so much scary stuff at the end of this movie. Yeah. And actually, yeah, friend of the show, um, uh, my friend Jason, who who often writes in and gives us notes and stuff, he um, yeah, he warned he warned me that his kids were a little scared on it, so um, that was the other reason why I wanted to see it. So she says, "Hell, that was a big deal when I was a kid." She swears. Yes, but does she? I mean, so when is it a swear and when are you using it as an actual word? Yeah, I, she's using it as an actual it, word. She says, uh, <laughs> "You'll face me in all the powers of hell." It seems like she pretty pretty well has them. <laughs> yeah. So, is there imagery in here that we should be latching onto in that in that sort of area? Like, is she? I mean, is she meant? I mean, we talked about how she's kind of personification of evil itself, but well, she's got the horns, right? Her her head headdress has horns, and it's not clear whether she does or <laughs> or whether that's just the way she likes to dress. I don't know which one I would prefer. Yeah, she's kind of a, you know, uh, kind of a Star, Star Wars princess in that way. <laughs> yeah. One of the interesting things to me about her is that she's not really associated with the color red, which you would you would think she would be um, if she's associated with hell. Instead, she has these very cold colors, these purples and especially greens, like the fires that she she makes at the end of the movie as the dragon are all green. Which, right. I was going to ask you about that, actually. Um Sorry, I, I cut you off. I didn't mean to. No, that's fine. But is it like is that where like green? I feel like green like sorceress stuff <laughs> is a thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, is that was that prior to this movie, or is that was that all stemming from this? If it was prior to this, you would think it would come from a Disney movie. Is there another? Is there another one it comes from? I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know. She reminded uh, reminded me a little bit of like um, the. Uh, Oh, what is it? The silver chair where the, the prince is captured by the, the evil enchantress. And she's always like appearing as green. I have to is say, I'm not super familiar with, uh, with the Chronicles of Narnia, but I think, with, I think with, that would be before with good literature. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I feel guilty about it. Yeah. Not, as you should not guilty I mean, enough to you... go and read them, but 
I mean, aren't you an English professor at a Christian college, Michael? Yeah, and the students are always <laughs> horrified to learn how much I dislike Tolkien. <laughs> There's a little bit of Tolkien in this too, going back to the loot player. I was reading The Hobbit to my um to my oldest daughter tonight and the like the the when they're when the Hobbit's escaping from the the Wood Elf's kingdom, the uh the the reason he's able to do it is because the 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 wine that's supposed to be only for the king is is drunk by the by the by the guard and by the butler. So that's interesting. I the, yeah, so I saw a little bit of that in there too. It's probably a medieval trope that the the servants steal the king's food and wine. Yeah, and they're like the yeah. In the Hobbit, it seems like maybe they can't handle it because they're not royal. Maybe. Or maybe they're just maybe they're just drinking too much of it because they're not aware of how strong the good stuff is. Like they're used to the to the not strong stuff because they're you know they're farther down the chain. Anyway, this is not about the Hobbit. So yeah, that's the scene that really sticks out to me. I think is you know him in prison, him escaping from the prison, the fight, the dragon. Like I really enjoyed all that. The um the other one that really stands out I thought what was the the woodland scene where. Um, Aurora and Prince Philip first meet and they go dancing across and there's, you know, there's a a lake or a stream there and it's, it's a mere uh, reflection and it's really nice. And actually that this is where watching all these movies back to back really helps because there's that one really bad, I don't even remember what package film it's in, but like there's a really bad kind of silhouette dance scene. Remember? I like that silhouette. It's called silhouettes. Oh, I don't that's remember which right. one's from. Dude, I, I like that. You did one. I like found it. it very I forgot. Charming. I forgot that you liked it. I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, I thought it was really bad. I, I well, I, I thought the the difference between that and this, that's like true. how this far is much they, they came, was really amazing. Because they're not exactly silhouettes in this one, but they're you know it's close. It's like they're far away and yeah. It's, it's gonna really be good. really tough to animate dancing. Yeah, I think so. But, I mean, this must be the height of 2D animation. I mean, certainly to this point, but, I mean, the animation in this movie is so incredibly complicated. Think about about animating the the fight with the dragon by hand. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much in this movie. And and part of it was, so there was a lot of delays on this movie in in the production process, and some of it was that, well... Just apparently wasn't very interested, um, as as we've talked about for the last several movies. Um, well, they're building Disneyland at this point, and he's very busy yeah. with television. Right. Yeah. But the other thing was because of the, yeah, because they were animating in this different style, and they were really almost, you know, I feel like it was almost a reversion back to like what we talked about around you know, Pinocchio and Fantasia and stuff where he was going for the super, um, super fine art, you know, like, I feel like he went back to that and that created this, this moment where, yeah, it is, it is really incredible. Um, yeah, just really incredible animation. It has artistic pretensions that, the other movies, even from the fifties, all of which are really good. I don't, I don't think they have the pretensions this does. I'm not sure anything other than Fantasia does. Yeah. 
And then uh, also, uh, coincidentally or not, I'm not sure, but like this, this is the last movie before the Xerox technology comes in. It's because the and movie I feel bankrupted like, the studio. Yeah, well, yeah, and it didn't do very well at the time because people didn't, people didn't actually like the. They felt like it was too pretentious. Well, it got bad reviews, but it was actually the second highest grossing movie of 1959 after Ben-Hur. It's just that the the movie was so incredibly expensive to produce because because they wanted to make, you know, the most beautiful animated movie ever that 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 wasn't enough money. So, yeah, it almost bankrupted them. Yeah. So we'll talk more about the Xerox thing next. Well, in a couple months when we get to 101 Dalmatians, because but I think it's. It's probably like we've seen technology advances, like just in the way they do colors and the way they do sound. We went to widescreen, like we, you know, like a lot of different things have changed since we started, uh, you know, 16 movies ago or 15 movies ago. But um, I feel like the the move from this movie to the Xerox is the most analogous to what we're gonna get when we move from 2D to computer animation. Like the technology comes in and changes it, and it changes the look, and it's just a, there's a, just a very different feel from that point. And not forward. really in either case, I think for the best. There, there's some well, there's some charm to the Xerox movies, but I'm I'm not sure anybody could possibly argue that those movies are as good looking as Sleeping Beauty or even Lady and the Tramp. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, we'll get that's a bit of a teaser. We'll get there more when we get to 101 Dalmatians. I don't want to steal our own thunder here, but um, yeah, I do. I do think that this movie is really beautiful and really beautiful, like in a way that that their other movies aren't. Partly because of the difference in the backgrounds and and things like that. I don't know if it's their most beautiful. I think I'm still on Bambi as my favorite of this whole thing, and maybe some of that's nostalgia. But I just I really I think Bambi is is my highlight of like this is this is the ideal animated film bambi is the style is very very different and there's there's a reason for that the 50s are a time of enormous um change in animation and in particular you get this company i think they're called upa that uses these really stylized animations and eventually that style makes its way back to disney and you get a bunch of shorts that have that style, and we'll talk about some of them next month in our 1950s shorts episode. Um, but then you also see it very clearly in Sleeping Beauty. So the animation is less realistic than Bambi. I mean, one of the things, the backgrounds in Bambi are so beautiful uh, because they're somewhere, they're pitched somewhere between photographic realism and surrealistic uh, watercolors, right? Um, and then the the animals are uh, animated in a way that it's supposed to look like real animals, albeit cartoonized animals. Uh, here, they're not really shooting for realism exactly. The characters and backgrounds are too stylized for that. I think what they're shooting for is a medieval tapestry come to life. And I, in in that in that sense, I'm not sure there's another movie anywhere that looks like Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, I think that's a good point that they kind of they they went for a style and they they <laughs> they nailed it. They nailed that style, but whether that's a style that anybody else wants to try and do. Right. And if um, you don't like that style, if you're not into the the whole medieval tapestry look, you, uh, you know, a lot of the beauty of Sleeping Beauty is going to be lost on you because it's just not your thing. I want to know from medievalists how much 
this looks like their fantasy version of the medieval era. Because I, I wonder how many people became medievalists because of the tapestry look of Sleeping Beauty subconsciously. Yeah, it's a great question. I would like to know that, too. I'm sure David Grubbs can uh, can write in and tell us once he listens to this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's very much like I was listening to uh, the recent Book of Nature episode, um, and they were discussing Twister, and they talked about how many people were in meteorology departments because of Twister. Even though it's <laughs> so, totally unrealistic. Or you think of, like, anthropology and <laughs> Indiana Jones, even though right. what he does yeah. has nothing to do with what an archaeologist actually does. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's funny. It's funny to think how many fields are full of people because of because of certain movies. But, yeah, that'd be interesting to know how many medievalists came out of uh, out of watching Sleeping Beauty. I think my own interest in the Middle Ages, which is an amateur's interest, I think it has a lot to do with the tapestry look of this movie. Hmm. And and Disney World's Fantasyland, which is heavily influenced by this movie, which makes sense because they're 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 making this movie when they build Disneyland. In fact, Sleeping right. Sleeping Beauty's castle at Disneyland opens four years before this movie does. What do you think about the music in this movie, Michael? Well, it's it's also artsy, right? Um, this is another connection to Fantasia because the score of this movie comes, I believe, entirely from uh, Piotr Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty ballet, um, and and most famously the song "Once Upon a Dream," which is the only song anybody remembers from Sleeping Beauty. That's right out of the ballet, but I think the other songs may be too. Are there other songs actually besides yeah. Scumps? Scumps, yeah, Scumps is a, a, it's a really big moment in the ballet, I'm pretty sure. Okay. I, I'm not super familiar with the ballet, so what do I know? I was, no, that was a joke. I don't know. I don't How know dare idea. you? I know. But I turned on the ballet today because I was curious to, like, catch, like if I could catch where the musical cues are. Because sometimes I can't. Like, I, I'll be honest. Like, I, I really like music and I really enjoy it. But, but sometimes it, it takes me a while to catch on, on how things are, are tightly related, even when you think they would be. Um, but my wife made me turn it off, so I didn't get very far into it. So, so the score, it says, is officially credited to George Bruns. But apparently most of it does come pretty directly from the Sleeping Beauty Ballet. Yeah. I think yeah. a lot of people, when they encounter that ballet, are very surprised to hear um, Once Upon a Dream, uh, which yeah. is, of course, not called that in the ballet. The, right. It's called the Grand something, isn't it? I I, I've always heard I, of it as the Sleeping Beauty Waltz, but that's probably when it's performed outside of the the entire ballet. Yeah. 
I wonder. Once Upon a Dream, what a song. What a song, though. Oh, it's that so beautiful. That really good. Yeah. It's really good. I mean, I guess if you're only going to have one good song in your movie, you could do a lot worse than this one. Uh, I'm sorry. There are at least two good songs in this movie because Scumps <laughs> is in this movie. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's a, that's a great that's a great song. <laughs> Apologies. Um, <laughs> yeah. Man, that... It's so it's been in my head for since Thursday. Like when I watched this, it's been really rolling through there. It's it's a really great song. It really is, yeah. Really beautiful. I mean, even without the so I found a, you know, I was I was trying to do some research on this. I was trying to be um, a good podcast host, and I I, I watched a I watched a like where they'd sent scenes of the movie to um, the ballet music, and when that Once Upon a Dream comes on. Or whatever it's called of the ballet version, you know, like I mean, it's it still works. It's really good, even without the words, you know. I wonder how really... much of the dancing in that scene comes from the ballet. Oh, that's a great question. Somebody really needs to do like a side by side comparison, or if they have, they need to listen to our podcast and tell me that they did because I I googled around for it and I couldn't find it. Um, but I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah, but uh, again, again it, it just goes to show you that this is the the most it's the movie with the most artistic pretense since since Fantasia, and I would say largely it works better than Fantasia. Yeah, I don't I don't know I really like Fantasia too. I, I do too. You know, we're we're talking about difference in degree here. Um, I, yeah. I liked everything up until the package films, and then I've liked everything since the package <laughs> films, and I liked a couple right, of the yeah. package films. Okay. Yeah. But I I I think each of the first five movies was better than the one that came before it, and so mm-hmm. Bambi to me is the height of the studio until probably until Sleeping Beauty. I'm, I'm not sure that I would say Lady and the Tramp is better than Bambi. Yeah, other than that, there's not really let's see, there's a do they sing a song while they're working in the There's a lot of rhyming in this movie. I don't know if it's actually like a song song, right? Like I think when they're there's there's a little bit of a song when they get their magic wands back. They're instructing the eggs to cook and Oh right, yeah. Really, really weird. <laughs> <laughs> they instructed the eggs to like crack themselves into the into the bowl. Um, is, does that count as suicide for eggs, or is the yeah, interior of the egg the important thing? Yeah, maybe. But then it's still going to be eaten later. But maybe that's you know they live to serve. I don't know. It's really. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've ruined that scene for me, Josh. Congratulations. <laughs> My favorite thing about the cooking scene is that she builds this enormous, terrible 12-layer cake, ices it, puts candles on it, and then announces that she still has to bake it. Yeah. That's bad cooking. (laughs) Yeah. It's a really cute scene. I really like that one. Between the the dress and and the cake... It's just it's just wonderfully done. What's funny, they understand nothing about human culture, but then also they think it's super easy to learn because humans are a bunch of morons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It does stretch the imagination though to try and figure out like how did they how did they survive for sixteen years? Because this is the, the I mean you have to imagine this is the height of their, their success at this point, right? Right. Yeah, they've had sixteen, <laughs> 16 years, 16 of, years of work. And and it's explicitly stated they haven't used magic in 16 years. Yeah. 
Yeah, I bet Meriwether's been sneaking it in the background. <laughs> yeah, who's Florida to tell sure her what to has. do? <laughs> she knew exactly where those wands were. <laughs> she went to go get them. She, yeah, yeah. Another series of bad decisions, though, deciding to get into a fight over the color of that dress, <laughs> and then they're sending up, uh, basically, um, you know, smoke signals to the to the Raven. Diablo, although I don't think he's ever called Diablo in the movie itself. I love I love ravens, and it was sad to see him be turned into a statue. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about that actually. Although I can't remember if you liked ravens or crows. They're essentially the same bird. Ravens are bigger yeah. and smarter, but they're they're very closely related. Yeah. I feel like you could redo this movie with uh, Huey, Dewey, and Louie playing the um, the fairies, and then. Uh, Magic of Dispel as <laughs> Maleficent, and the her raven being this this raven. What is her raven's name? Do you remember? This, maybe it doesn't have a name. Uh, I don't know. I feel like isn't isn't the raven her? <laughs> oh, man, we were really far afield. I think that her raven is actually her brother, who is cur- like she's always working to like free him from the curse of being a raven. Speaking to bring it back to this movie of Huey, Dewey, and Louie, <laughs> did you know that? that Walt Disney wanted the three fairies to have no personalities. He wanted them to be yeah. like Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Yeah. What a terrible idea that. that was. Yeah. <laughs> Just really goes to show like how uninvolved he was here. So that really doesn't... I mean, he's had stinker ideas in the past, I guess, but I mean, this is two episodes in a row where we're talking about how he didn't, he didn't have the vision for it. It was really... Uh, you know, in this one, it was Frank Thomas and... Uh, Oh, what's, what's the uh, Ollie other Johnston? Frank? Yeah, Ollie Johnston. And that was the same thing in uh, Lady and the Tramp. We were talking about the spaghetti scene. He didn't want to do the spaghetti scene, and then Frank Thomas went off and did it on his own. It just goes to show you how these movies are not one person's vision, even though we tend to give Disney credit. Um, it's you know, it's a it's a team of people, like any any sort of project like that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really right. Although we talked so much in the early films about how, you know, what did Disney bring to it? And, like, it was often, like, the most memorable moments or the most memorable scenes or the most memorable joke, like, came from Disney himself, yeah, you know? Yeah, sure. And now, and now it's the most memorable scenes and jokes and things are coming from his animators. So I think there there is still, as much as it's obviously... I mean, Disney never drew a single frame, as far as I know, you know, like in, in any of these movies. Um, he he was an animator himself working on, Dis- on you know, Mickey Mouse early on and stuff. But I don't think in any of the feature films he drew a single frame, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, obviously it's team, but it's it's interesting which members of the team come to the fore. Yeah, it, this is much less his vision than than some of the other movies. Which is, I guess, for the better. I mean, he was he was busy with things he was more interested in. Uh, I mean, Disneyland is at least as amazing an achievement of, as this movie, and maybe more so. You know, it was essentially the first theme park. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting too. Um, yeah. Definitely, the theme parks I would say have reached. You, what do you think? Have the theme parks reached more people than the movies? That's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, I I, I couldn't answer that. 
probably not. The 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 bar of entry for the theme parks is rather high, right? I mean, it's a hundred bucks to go to the Magic Kingdom in yeah. Florida. It's probably up to a hundred and twenty by now. Um, yeah. And in the movies, you know, anybody can watch. So, yeah, so that's true. Probably not. Yeah, that's true. But it is interesting, like when he's got his fingers in so many different things to think about, you know, which which was his greatest impact. You know, was it the feature films? Was it what he did for television? Was it, you know, he's built this empire. Maybe it's silly to even try and parse it out. But well, what's I mean, one thing that's interesting is that the television shows essentially have no cultural power anymore, other than the Mickey Mouse Club, and even that's just kind of an idea people have of it. I don't. Have you ever seen a single episode of the Mickey Mouse Club? I've not. Yeah, me neither. And you know, I know some of the songs. I know "Stop, Look, and Listen," and of course the Mickey Mouse Club March. But I, the his his work on television, I think, was considered very important at the time, and yet it has been lost um, to to the cultural memory in a way that the movies and the theme parks certainly have not. Yeah. Yeah. I- I mean, there's still a lot going on on the Disney Channel that's really... I mean, I haven't noticed it as much with my current students. And it's interesting because my, you know, my students are international. So, you know, it, it depends on how closely connected they are. Like, it's not always Americans, but, you know, usually it's it's an American who would be more closely connected to Disney Channel stuff. But, you know, that's so Raven and, uh, gosh, what a, whatever those... There's there's like a bunch of like the, kind of teeny the sweet, shows. Sweet life of Zach and Cody. Yeah, sweet. Yes, yes, yes. That stuff was huge here for a while. Like people were really into it, and I was like, so I don't know. Do you do, do your kids watch the Disney Channel? My kids? Mm-hmm. No. Oh well, they um they watch um whatever the Rap- the Rapunzel one is, Happily Ever After. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> whatever it's called. There's a Rapunzel cartoon that follows like after the movie. I basically have not watched the Disney Channel since I was a child. And we didn't have cable, so I only watched it on vacation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm sure we'll get to that when we get to Tangled because there's so much uh that they they really build the universe out in that cartoon. Which is what they do. I think I think there's several of their properties that they've done that with, and I haven't seen them, so I mean we don't need to talk about them, but I know that there's like a lion's guard or something that builds out the Lion King universe, and there's there was an Aladdin Lilo. TV show when we were kids. Yeah, yeah. So which I never saw. No, me either. I do want to ask you though. I mean, we kind of touched on this, like deeper, deeper theme type things, but like, I I don't know, like what what exactly? I mean, is it just the power of the power of love? Is that all we're supposed to get out of this movie, or is there something that I'm missing? I really think that it's worth thinking about this movie in terms of elemental forces. So you have Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether, whose names, um, you know, Flora means plants, Fauna means animals, and Meriwether suggests the weather. And eventually, uh, originally they were going to have powers that corresponded to those names, but uh, you, you end up with just the kind of shadow of that in this movie so you have them and then you have these rules for magic whereby maleficent is more powerful than they are she's she's also elemental she's connected with fire obviously um 
she's more powerful than them, and there's these rules for what their magic can and can't do. So um, Meriwether wants to turn her into a hop toad, but she can't, both because Maleficent is more powerful than her and because they're only allowed to use their powers for good. Um, although I'm not sure how destroying evil isn't a good act. Right. Oh, they and they turn the raven to stone at one point. Yeah, I guess it makes her happy. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's right. That's a great line too. She's like, "Well, it make me happy." There's a couple of really good lines. So when they're talking about Maleficent, and then she says, "I don't think she's very happy." <laughs> <laughs> the poor deer. Well, they, they have that bit about how um, Maleficent her her powers are limited by her inability to understand good things. She doesn't understand good goodness or kindness or the joy of helping others. Uh, and and yeah, and so kind of a proto uh, proto Voldemort there. Yeah, so not, so not to spoil it for anybody who hasn't read the books. <laughs> so she's she's eventually destroyed when the fairies help Philip. Do you know what I mean? When when they <laughs> enact the joy of helping others. Yeah, that's really good, Michael. Thank you. I'm, I just I'm made that up off that. the top of my head. No, you did. Did you? Kind of. You know, I was wow. I was thinking about You're so good. I was thinking You're about so them. Yeah, well, this is what happens when you teach for ten years and only prep about a third of the classes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't doubting that it was your original thought. I just I was amazed that you came up with it on the spot. That's uh, I'm a, that's double. What you call a it's verbal a, processor? Yeah, that's great. But I, I mean, I, I do think I do think it's worth thinking about them as these as these elements, which, from my understanding of medieval views of magic, is very much in line with uh, with the way medieval people thought about ma- how magic works. That it, it's mm-hmm. not that they're supernatural; it's that they're supernatural. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I really like this idea. I do, I yeah. I need to go back and watch this movie again. <laughs> no. So so the battle is up, the battle is kind of about brain here. the battle is kind of about whether the the good natural forces in the universe are going to overcome the bad natural forces in the universe. Yeah, and what's his his because his sword is truth, and then his shield is. Do you remember like, virtue? Virtue, yeah. Yeah. Which I didn't, I didn't quite understand in the in the movie, you know. I mean, I I thought, oh, that's that's cool. It never it never <laughs> but, really comes up, does it? Right, but but now that you've said this, like thinking about you know elemental forces and stuff, that that makes a lot of sense. I really like that. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Cool. All right. Well, what haven't what have I not asked you yet that we should talk about with this movie? Yeah, so one thing that interests me is when they're in the when they're in the cottage in the woods and they're preparing to take Aurora back to her parents and Aurora's finally going to be safe, right? The fairies are kind of melancholy about it because her safety means that she no longer needs them. And it, it got me thinking about, you know, that's that's essentially the life of a teacher, right? The the students the students need you hardcore for however long they're in your classes. And then the necessary thing is that they leave you behind and you, you have to be happy about that because it's not that they're going to be safe the way it is for Aurora, but you know, they're going to go out and be the people they're supposed to be. But that means that at least in their life, you no longer have a purpose. Um, so that I, I thought that was fairly well done and maybe I'm reading into it, but uh, I thought I liked that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that makes, 
good sense, especially kind of in their roles, right? Like they're not her parents. They're a guardian. They're acting in local parentis, yeah. I guess. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, literally. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really good. And it just, I mean, it, it just reinforces the notion that the, the real heroes of this movie are the three fairies. Yeah, and the real heroes of, of our world are teachers. Right, I'm the hero. I agree. <laughs> I agree. The question is, which of the fairies am I? <laughs> Have we talked about how Meriwether is played by Barbara Luddy, who who is Lady in Lady and the Tramp? Oh, no, we did not talk about that. I wouldn't have known that. It's a, it, I think it's a pretty different vocal performance from Lady. Yeah. I can kind of imagine it now that you said it, but I don't think I did. I definitely didn't pick up on it. Not the way that I picked up on like uh, Maleficent and Lady Tremaine being the same. Yeah. He, you know, like, like a lot of directors, they, they reused actors a lot. Yeah. Well, I feel like we're going to just keep seeing that. Sure. (laughs) There's, there's some like classic Disney voices that just, you know, they're, they're there for a lot. So. We'll be in the Phil Harris era soon enough. Yeah. Well, that was really great. You really opened this movie up to me, so I appreciate that. Like I said, it's my favorite. I, I just think it's such a beautiful, well-done movie. Um, the the animation is really remarkable. We haven't talked about the spell animation at the beginning when they're blessing Aurora. Uh, there's some animation that looks almost like it's made 3D on a computer, but obviously it was not. Yeah, it's kind of... <laughs> and I think that... Yeah, I think that gets it um, a little back, bit back to that like elemental forces type idea too, right? Like, where are they drawing this power out of Like as they, they make this wish? And it kind of... I don't know, it looks almost cosmic, you know? Like the the animation that they do there yeah i was really curious about that animation like how they did it because it almost looks like a, you know it almost looks like they filmed a like a record spinning or something yeah maybe that's true you know and then then kind of animated over it yeah or something i don't know what? it was really it looked it looked out of place in a way um that, yeah, exactly like what you said. Like today, nowadays, you would expect like, oh yeah, that's where they stuck in the computer animation. <laughs> Although obviously that's not what they were doing there. So yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I, I think maybe we're we're less inclined to notice it just because we see things like that all the time in animated movies. But I I, I can't imagine how they did it. You you can see why this movie was so expensive. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah. Plus, I guess the. Yeah, just with the drawing style and stuff, the the in betweeners were were getting like oh, I forget what the ratio was, but it was like a second of film done a day or something oh, like oh that. Like goodness. it was just something just really awful, you know. Well, we talk. I mean, it took so. basically the entire 1950s to make this movie. Yeah, yeah. So one other thing to note um, is that. Don Bluth, this was the first movie I think he worked on, period. Don Don Bluth is responsible for a lot of non-Disney animation in the 80s and 90s. He did American Tale. He did The Land Before Time. I think just the first one. He did All Dogs Go to Heaven, Anastasia, uh, Rockadoodle. So he, he's a, a competitor for Disney eventually. And he, he worked on this movie, and I think it was his first feature project. So... 
we probably have some listeners who are big Don Bluth fans. I don't happen to be one, but um, you you know you you owe him to Sleeping Beauty in some ways, as you owe Sleeping Beauty to him in some ways. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely a bit like a big name, right? And well, particularly in the time that you and I were both growing up, because all those all those movies that you named, he was he's definitely doing it at that time. Right. Yep. Yeah. We mentioned him once before. I was trying to remember when. Oh, Land Before Time. Oh, did we talk that's about right. Land Before Time? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's when we that's when we mentioned it before. Yeah. So. <clears throat> yeah. Um. Yeah, it's interesting to see. You know, Chuck Jones worked on this movie. Is Chuck Jones. Is that true? The famous. Yeah. Well, that's. Uh, yeah, I believe everything on Wikipedia, Michael. So that's the thing. Um, <laughs> that's that's amazing. You don't think about he's un- so he's uncredited. So I guess uh, Warner Brothers was going through a like they were talking about shuttering their animation at some point in the fifties, and so he went over to Disney for like three months, and then they were like, "What are we doing? Our our animation's important." And so he came back over, and so he's uncredited on this, but supposedly he. He worked on this this movie for about three months. Do, do we talk about who Chuck Jones is? I mean, he he does the Wiley e. Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons, probably most famously, yeah. and also I think he directed the cartoon version of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Oh yeah. Speaking definitely. of before they were live. Yeah, yeah. I have a hard time believing anybody is listening to this show and does not know who. Chuck Jones is. That's probably true. Fair <laughs> enough. But, no, but I'm glad you mentioned it because it is it is important not to let those things slide by. So, yeah, I would venture even most of the people listening to this show knew who Don Blues was. <laughs> that's that's probably also true. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah. So. Yeah, when I read that though, I was really surprised. I had no idea that he ever did anything at Disney. So yeah, it's I, the Don Bluth thing surprises me a little. The Chuck Jones thing surprises me a lot. Yeah, well, I think Don Bluth, I I knew a little more, and I I guess we'll probably get to this um, at some point whenever we get to like kind of the dark ages and of Disney. Uh, yeah, I think there were, that's there was a real argument over what animation should be and what it should look like and and so the don bluth style which you know you listed off all those movies like you can you can see them across that movie uh across those movies that you know there was an argument within disney of do we go this direction or not and obviously they decided not to and that was so he went off and founded his own animation company and was very successful with that so there's room there's room for more than one style i would say well, absolutely, so that's good. yeah well, Michael, do you want to tell them about um, what we're doing next month? Yeah, so um, it's another one of our interlude episodes. We've reached the end of the 1950s, so we're going to look at some shorts from the 1950s, which is the last decade they really do a lot of shorts. Um, so get your pens and paper out and uh, write down the shorts we're going to do. Uh, Susie the Little Blue Coop, which is, uh, I believe, a Mary Blair short. Uh, it's the best ever. Goofy, no smoking. That. Is that is is that the name of the short, or is it just called No Smoking and it stars? It's Goofy. called No Smoking, but yeah, starring Goofy. In the bag, which is a delight, starring the great Humphrey the Bear, pa- yeah. Paul Bunyan, The Truth About Mother Goose, maybe my favorite Disney short of all time, Innieberg, USA, 
And then I had us doing a symposium on popular songs, but I think we should do uh, a short called Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom instead. Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom. I think that'll be better than symposium. So Susie the Little Blue Coop, No Smoking, In the Bag, Paul Bunyan, Truth About Mother Goose, Anyberg USA, and Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom. Excellent. Yeah, so that'll be next month, and then we will jump into the 60s with 101 Dalmatians, Good. which is another one of my favorites. So Good times. So yeah, I love that movie, too. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I assume mm-hmm. all of – I haven't bothered checking. I assume all of these shorts are on YouTube? Uh, I hope so. Um, if they're not, yeah. There's there's always there's always ways to see things. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all we'll say about that. Even, even beyond YouTube, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know the ones that I sent to you are all on YouTube. I have not. Uh, I did, I forgot to also Google or YouTube the the ones that you mentioned, but I will this month. I'm looking forward to it. I like our shorts episodes. Yeah, I did if you too. skipped it's, it last time, uh, Carter, um, then <laughs> go back and listen to them. They're fun. Yeah, yeah, and and you know the shorts are the shorts are all available for free pretty much at least until the new Disney streaming site starts because I I I really suspect that they're gonna they're gonna have all the shorts on there and take them off right. of YouTube. Yeah. Yes, I am. Yeah, that'll be a that'll be a sad day for us uh, YouTube fans because it's amazing what's on there, and it's not always very high quality. That's true. Um, you know, so if you're watching it to really get a handle on the animation, that YouTube's not the best anyway. But, um, but like I said, the good things could come out of this this uh, Disney animated streaming thing like if they really if they really do good to their you know to bring things out of the archives and stuff that that maybe they haven't in the past i don't have high hopes for that but maybe you never know are you going to subscribe to it i mean i guess uh most likely not because most things like that you can't subscribe to internationally oh sure Um, you just have to keep stealing them (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I steal very little, honestly. I do, I do try in my best to to be above board. Um, but yeah, when they put it in the vault, it's 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 hard to it's hard to do anything otherwise, you know. I, so. I didn't think about that about you not being on. So do you? Are you able to have Netflix? Um, yeah, people here do have Netflix. Um, I I personally don't, but um, people do, and so yeah, we watched. Uh, we were at a friend's house and we watched. Disney's The Three Musketeers on Netflix the other day. <laughs> that was that was an that was an interesting bit of animation. So, <laughs> wait, you mean you're not talking about the live action one then? No, I'm talking about Donald and Goofy and uh, Mickey. It was from 2004, I think. Oh, I haven't seen it's, that. It it's not worth uh, <laughs> it's not worth seeking out. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a direct to direct to something. Direct to VHS or whatever. Cool. Um, or not cool. Yeah, cool or not cool. Um, yeah, so Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. So we really do thank you for listening to us or choosing us. We, we really appreciate it. Uh, we want you to know that Before They Were Live is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Um, our press liaison is Christian Philippic. Uh, you can help us continue this conversation by emailing us at before they were live at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore alt and Michael is at Michael Farmer. Uh, we also have a website that is occasionally updated with show notes and that's before they were dot live and we'd love it if you visit us there. There's a, there's a button there that 
that you can communicate with us through. So for Michael Farmer and I'm Josh Waltman Schofer. Uh, thank you for listening and scumps. <laughs> scumps. <laughs>